1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Suman Sate about his book, Difference in Disease, Medicine, Race, and the 18th Century British Empire, published by Cambridge University Press. Suman Sate is Marie Underhill Knoll Professor of the History of Science at Cornell University. He works on the social, cultural, and intellectual history of science and medicine, and his interests include the history of medicine, race, and colonialism, as well as the physical sciences and gender and science. He's also the author of Crafting the Quantum, Arnold Sommerfeld and the Practice of Theory, 1890 to 1926. And he has served as the guest editor of a special issue of the journal Postcolonial Studies on science, colonialism, postcolonialism, and of a focus section of the journal ISIS on relocating race. And he is co editor of the journal Osiris. Suman, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me on, Rachel.
0: Well, I'm really looking forward to speaking with you today. Uh, And would you begin by telling us something about your academic background and how you came to write about this topic?
1: Sure. I mean, the the path to this is a little winding. I double majored in physics and applied math in undergrad, which makes a bit more sense of my next trajectory, which was to become a historian of physics. So the first book I wrote was on the history of quantum theory in Germany. Um, which is not at all uh, the topic of my next book. Um, But I had long been interested in and had been teaching about the history of race in particular and about science and colonialism. So my original thought was to maybe do something on 20th century German colonialism and science. And then for reasons too complicated to explain, I eventually ended up with the project that I worked on, which essentially changed everything uh, that I'd done before. So I moved from Germany, uh, to the British empire. I moved from the 20th century to the 18th century. And I moved from physics to medicine, um, which required of course, retraining in everything, but that's, that's the path in essence.
0: Wow. So you really branched out and, indeed.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you said you've been focusing on race, um, uh, for a while as a, a topic, and was that? but that wasn't really part of your initial training. So how did you get there? No,
1: it wasn't. No, I, I'd always been interested. I tried to do a field in graduate school in the history of science and colonialism. It had always been an interest. Uh, and when I got hired at Cornell, I told them that this was one of my interests. And they said, well, great, we want you to teach the history of physics, but it would also be great if you wanted to teach the history of science, race and colonialism. So for years, a decade in essence, um, I'd been teaching grad level and senior undergraduate level classes on the topic. So it kind of made the transition to the new stuff easier. I had a background conceptually, if not in terms of my research.
0: I see that's fascinating and I guess we can get into later if you're sticking with the um, history of physics <laughs> but for now <laughs> let's talk about <laughs> difference and disease and I actually want to let's begin with the beginning which is the title of your book which is difference and disease and in the book I noted that you were use the word difference in sometimes nuanced ways uh, for instance you write a different kind of difference so what does the title mean by difference
1: I mean, you're right, of course, what it means is lots of different things. Um, And in many ways, it gets to the, the kind of heart of the project. The reason I wanted to do medicine, say, rather than physics is it seemed like a really good way to explore all kinds of topics, all kinds of differences, if you will. Um, So there's a lot of forms of difference that medicine helps me interrogate in the book. So, for example, the most basic locational difference, the difference, for example, between European uh, metropoles and colonial peripheries, um, differences of status that goes with those locations. You're a much more famous physician uh, working in London than you are working in Barbados or Jamaica. Um, and you're considerably more privileged if you've had training in Europe compared to uh, no training or lesser training in the colonies. And indeed, the book starts with a fight, literal fight, a duel between two guys where they're arguing over their differences. One of them uh, is a doctor trained in Europe. The other one, he persistently calls him Mr. because he doesn't have uh, a medical degree and he's not trained in Europe. So there's those kind of status differences running through the book. Um, there's differences of gender and sex that I think are really interesting that get into their explanations of how to explain illnesses. Differences of location also matter to how they explain illnesses, whether you've been habituated to the place that you're in, habituated to the place that you were. And um, And of course, the most basic kind of difference for the West Indies, which is where I spend a lot of my time, differences between free people and enslaved people, and differences of medical treatment as a result. And then ultimately, the thing that kind of got me into this, given the kind of courses that I'd been treating in my classes, which was race as a really kind of central form of difference. how did medicine inform understandings of race? How did it create new forms of race and how did racial difference construct medical therapeutics and diagnosis? So in many ways, thinking about difference becomes a way of thinking through almost the entirety of the book and looking for, if you can pardon it, different kinds of difference that medicine reveals.
0: So that makes me think about difference. um would you say that difference, because you know, it begins with a duel about a difference, is difference always a source or a
1: rationale for
0: conflict?
1: Uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, I don't think necessarily, and I think one of the, that actually gets to a really important point and one of the things that I'm interested in, which is differences don't always make a difference, right? There, there's a near infinite number of differences that we can point to, which sometimes don't matter and sometimes are crucial. And one of the things that I'm interested in is when and in what situations do particular differences matter. So part of the argument of the book is that race is not actually a central category for analysis for most of my physicians for much of the 18th century. Um, so even though that's kind of live as a concept, it's not always biological race doesn't always lead to conflict. There are other ways of explaining or justifying, uh, various other kinds of social difference. So no, I think that, uh, you know, that there are a near infinitude of differences, but whether they matter. is is a kind of a a thing that we have to explore in the given moment. And they don't always matter at any given time.
0: And and maybe whether people look for, uh, decide whether they matter or not, I guess I should say.
1: Exactly right, right? Um, Why they come to matter uh, is actually an essential kind of point. There are various kinds of differences across the years that we have thought mattered and now don't really
0: uh, yeah, and I and was a real eye-opener to me reading your book about the race not necessarily being the that rationale for difference compared to some of the other differences <laughs> that came up. Exactly it, right. is, it is yes. a word. Yes. Sometimes yeah,
1: sometimes the language can be tough, right, because we multiply differences in the book. Um,
0: it does arise a lot of times. You know, you should do a, a, an analysis to see how many times difference <laughs> appears in the
1: book. <laughs> To be Um, fair, though, I I mean, just one little thing I'll say is that the, the inverse of that is, of course, sometimes it's really important to create similarities. And so one of the tensions in the book is about the construction of similitudes as well. So, for example, we now think in terms of, say, tropical diseases as if the tropics, which is this massive latitudinal band, is the kind of, the same place. And part of the argument of the book is that people didn't necessarily think that way. They saw differences across uh, this this kind of wide band that we often put together. So there's always a tension between the construction of similarities and the construction of differences. Both of those are artificial, so to speak, and need to be tracked.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um. So kind of with something, staying with something that uh, that comes up many times in the book. Uh, you cite a number of influential 18th century authors, mostly medical men, who were observing and analyzing and theorizing these things you're talking about, about the differences and uh, similitudes to uh, of disease and of vulnerability to disease in these various parts of the world. And, and many of them seem to trace back to the Hippocratic text called Ayers, Waters and Places, which was new to me. Would you describe the text and its importance to this topic?
1: Yeah, it's an absolutely central text. It's it's actually, I teach a history of medicine class. That's how I taught myself the history of medicine, uh, and one of the first texts we read is Airs, Waters, and Places. Um, so the reason that uh, that becomes central in the 18th century is basically this text imagines the conceit is that you have a Hippocratic physician who's traveling from town to town, basically, and describing the diseases that are characteristic of the various places that he visits. So the idea is that climate or location dramatically shapes the diseases of a place so if the wind is cold and northerly you'll get a certain kind of disease if the wind is warm and from the south say you'll get another kind of diseases the kinds of water that you drink will determine whether you're inclined to get like kidney stones for example so your location dramatically shapes your characteristic diseases It also shapes your, say, physical appearance, and it also shapes uh, the kind of political systems that you're inclined to. So one of the suggestions, one of the arguments that Hippocrates makes is that in Asia, by which he means Persia, the weather's so nice that the people are willing to submit to a despot, whereas in more changeable weather, read Greece, uh, you're more likely to be free people who would never accept such a thing. So it's a fascinating text that makes it kind of what we would call climatically determinist argument for diseases, uh, for political systems and for physical characteristics. It then becomes crucial in, say, the 17th and 18th century because you have a bunch of, say, European uh, travellers and colonial officials, doctors and so on, who go to different places. And their kind of model for thinking about this is, okay, well, every different place has different and characteristic diseases. So our job is to describe the characteristic diseases of this place, right? Right. So heaps of the people that I study begin their text on, say, the diseases of Barbados with this is what Hippocrates says in airs, Waters and Places, and then goes on to be specific about the diseases of Barbados, say, compared to Jamaica or compared to obviously London. So it's a real touchstone for talking about differences, if you will, because the whole logic is every place is kind of different because of its location.
0: Hmm. And that seemed to come into play uh, much later in, um, I believe at one point you write about how there was a belief that the people of Northern Europe were living in a more variable climate thus they were more durable and, and I think also productive was the implication compared to people in I guess what we would now call the global south.
1: Yes, 100%. So that idea, which you can find in the Hippocratic text around the 4th century BC, remarkably turns up again and fairly consistently in the 18th century and even into the 19th. That's a quite remarkably durable um, idea. What's interesting and kind of new, what gets added to that kind of airs, waters and places logic is this one new element, which is that As I said, the kind of conceit of airs, Waters and Places is that it's the doctor who's moving from place to place. What's interesting, of course, is that with European colonialism, it's increasingly large bodies of Europeans, soldiers and so on, who are going to other places and enslaved people who are being moved across the world. And so you get a different set of questions where it's not people locked in places, but in fact, people moving from their home places to completely different places. And that sets up a question about the changes that are induced when you go from the place to which you're habituated to a new place. And that's where we get into logics of seasoning. You have to become seasoned to your new climate and the illnesses that then follow if you don't season properly.
0: Well, that's great because that brings us directly to my next question, which is about seasoning sickness. Um, and chapter three is is about seasoning sickness. So, as you're saying, an illness contracted by people who end up in foreign places, uh, which may kill them, but if it doesn't kill them, yep. serves to accustom them to the climates, you know, to the climates' rigors. I, so, could you then explain a bit more about what is the relationship between seasoning and empire building?
1: Yeah, so let's begin with the basics. I mean, there is a way in which we can, we moderns can easily wrap our heads around seasoning by some examples that were actually live for my actors too. So we talk, for example, if you go to Denver, uh, the mile high city, uh, it takes a few days for you to get used to it, right? Uh, You need to get acclimated, we say. Um, seasickness is something that you need to get habituated to. That, that also was an example that my actors used. But the basic kind of logic they have, say, in the early 18th century, certainly in the 17th, is, look, you have a balance of humours that are appropriate, that balance, to the climate that you grow up in. So um, you'll have more cold humours in a cold climate, fewer warm humours. Now, imagine that you go from, say, squally, cold London to warm, sunny Jamaica. Well, the balance of humours that you need there is different. More warm humours, fewer cold humours. And in essence, you get a seasoning sickness, the severity of which is more profound given the difference between your new climate and your old climate. So if it's a radical difference, you're going to have a really pretty bad sickness while your body body, uh, adjusts itself to your new environment. And indeed, it can kill you. If it doesn't kill you, you're then adjusted to the new climate and then you should be okay. You shouldn't actually ever get that sick again. So that's the answer to what seasoning is. It struck me writing the book that, of course, this then allows... Uh, say, British officials and others, to kind of map a world according to how different uh, the adaptation is that you need. So there are some parts of the world that are massively different to London, and hence where you're going to need a huge seasoning sickness, some where it's so vast it's not clear to them that you can ever become seasoned to them. But then there are other places which are pretty similar, in fact, to London, even if they're quite far away. So you get this kind of conceptual and imperial mapping of places in medical terms, according to how similar or different, back we are again, to the place uh, that you're accustomed to. So as I note, this becomes a kind of way to map the empire in medical terms. And part of the argument of the third chapter is, of course, this changes over time. It changes according to how the British conceive of their empire. After the war of 1757, the the Seven Years' War, um, the conception of empire changes dramatically, and hence how different or similar some of these places seem. So as I say, it becomes a way of mapping an imperial sense of self and an imperial sense of otherness as that changes across the 18th century.
0: Hmm. And then, but but also being seasoned were Africans who were being brought from Africa to uh, places like the West Indies or Jamaica as well, right? And, and it was also understood that they would go through
1: seasoning. Exactly, which is what makes this kind of non-racial in a sense, because the idea is that Um, those of African descent are also not native to the West Indies, that this is a different climate for them as well. So they too require a seasoning. And indeed, in the the grim economic logic of the slave trade, a a number was essentially placed, a value was placed on the seasoning. So a seasoned slave was worth roughly 30% more than an unseasoned slave. And part of what was going in there was a was a calculation about likelihood to die. Uh, unseasoned slaves or new arrivals, about 30% of them died in the seasoning, according to the logics or the, the calculations at the time. So essentially that that horrific loss was priced into the value of seasoned slaves as well. So it's a brutal. System, but the logic worked or or functioned at almost every level, including economic.
0: Hmm. And would you say that was true for the because the military men who were coming from the navy, at least, it seemed like there was a a huge percentage of them who also died. Uh, and was that sort of built into military calculations? I wonder. Well,
1: I tried much harder, of course, with uh, European soldiers. So, part of the um, suggestions as they identify this problem is um, the seasoning sickness, as I said, was, was starkest where the difference between what you'd gotten used to and your new thing was largest. So, increasingly, what you get is arguments for soldiers is, okay, let's do this gradually. Let's not go directly from London to Jamaica. Let's say sail part of the way and maybe we can stop at Gibraltar, which is kind of warm, but not as warm as the West Indies. And so we can kind of get them habituated part of the way so that their disease isn't as strong when they arrive, right? So they do indeed. This logic profoundly shapes uh, naval policy and military policy. Um, and of course, since they're much more concerned with the lives of soldiers than they are with the enslaved, they suggest that kind of model in a way that they they just don't for enslaved people. Hmm.
0: Um, I want to go into the putrefactive paradigm because this is apparently what was killing a lot of people. Uh, this is something also new to me. Um, and I would say this theory of disease, it certainly gave Marshes a bad reputation, uh, but but it, it did a lot more than that too. So uh, could you explain how it informed an understanding of disease in place and why, in your words, the putrefactive paradigm was imperial medicine?
1: Sure. Yeah, so the term I actually grabbed from Mark Harrison's book um, on similarly uh, medicine in the 18th and 19th century. Um, But the logic, I use it a bit more kind of formally than he does. The logic is, in essence, uh, one had putrid fevers since the classical period. In essence, the category of putrid fevers expands dramatically in the 18th century to be kind of half of all the fevers that you get are described as putrid fevers. And there's a, there's a change, in essence, in, in the understanding of what putrid means. It had, it had earlier mean to kind of any form of, putref- of uh, corruption. Increasingly, what it means is, is a much more specific kind of thing. They relate uh, putrid fevers to the kind of rot that uh, meat undergoes in, say, warm climates. So the idea is that, in essence, what is going on inside your body for certain sicknesses is that your fluids and your solids are rotting, are putrefying. Uh, And the explanation is, I mean, it's multiple, that can happen spontaneously, uh, particularly if you're in a warm climate, or it can happen because you're near a marsh, exactly, and the kind of rot that's happening in a marsh. There are insects in marshy land who die, uh, so there's rotting stuff there. Plants rot and smell in marshes, so you can take that uh, putrefaction in by breathing it in, and then kind of like adding yeast to bread, it it spreads, right? So there's two kinds of models for it. But what's interesting, the reason I call it a paradigm is that then this idea shapes all kinds of logics. Um, So one of them is that it then starts shaping therapeutics. So you start doing a bunch of experiments. A bunch of guys start doing these across the 18th century where they're like, all right, well, if what's going on is that inside the body is rotting, we should study how you could stop rot. And so they do a bunch of experiments on meat, which they leave out. And then study as it rots, which is is exactly as gross as you would imagine. But one of the things, for example, they come to is that if you have say a lump of meat and you uh, spread lime juice, say, over it or orange juice over it, it rots more slowly than if you just leave it on there. So, and as a result, they're like, okay, so if we have a disease that we think is explained through putrefaction, like for example, scurvy it makes sense that you would then stave scurvy off by taking in, say, lime juice or orange juice. That's the kind of explanation. Now, our current explanation for scurvy is that it's a vitamin C deficiency, hence why you take on uh, orange juice or not. Uh, but the British explanation at the time is is in essence in terms of the putrefactive paradigm. Uh, and this is famously why British sailors get known as limeys, uh, because they're taking on lime all the time to uh, fight off scurvy. My favorite oh, I, I example of this is yeah. So that's the reason. That's why they're called <laughs> yeah, limes. Good to know. Yeah. Uh, because they become famous for limes, and indeed, Captain Cook manages to have essentially an entire uh, exploration of the Southern Seas where almost no one dies of scurvy, precisely because he's taking on limes and so on. Um, But my favourite example, the one that actually shapes our lives today in many ways, is uh, Joseph Priestley does a set of experiments where he works out that if you bubble fixed air, in essence what we would call carbon dioxide today, if you bubble that up around meat that's hanging on a string, then the meat doesn't decay as fast. And so what he thinks to himself is, okay... Well, I can't just bubble air past sailors, but what I could do is impregnate water with fixed air, thus creating artificial fizzy water or sparkling water, and that should work against scurvy. So he gets a medal for this, but it's worth noting that our construction of, like, sparkling water, in fact, stems from precisely this. It's originally a scurvy cure. Um... So the next time you drink a Coke, uh, think back to exactly where this is coming from.
0: Fast Okay, great, great cure for prevention for scurvy
1: is drink a Coke. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't work <laughs> anymore. <laughs> well, then I wonder if there's enough asorbic acid. Anyway, <laughs> uh, it
0: may it may preserve something else in you. Indeed, yes.
1: Yeah, I wanted
0: to get, I mean, gender is one of your your academic Mm -hmm. interests, and it's not the central topic here, but it does arise. And I mean, it seemed to me the main medical interest in women, uh, any kind of woman, uh, is basically sex-related, you know, menstruation, reproduction, venereal disease. Uh, Oddly enough, a warm climate, as you write, was thought to ease the difficulty of labor during childbirth, but there were also racialized elements to the the relationship with women, uh, particularly beliefs about black women who were usually slaves and venereal disease. And, and enslaved women were blamed for every kind of agony that they suffered in pregnancy and childbirth as well. So I just wonder, what do these beliefs about gender and women tell us about the understanding of race? as a concept during this period you're writing about?
1: Well, I mean, that's a, that's a really deep, question. Um, so you'll have to pick me up when I go slightly off topic seemingly or or stop me talking at some point. Um, the first thing that, that I would note just about gender is it turns up definitely in in questions of menstruation and so on. But I will note that it's actually super important too in talking about uh, fevers and other illnesses because one of the things that they note and then seek to explain, is that it seems to be that the most manly, strongest, most uh, robust men are the ones who go down hardest when it comes to something like yellow fever. And the women and more effeminate men don't seem to be afflicted by yellow fever or die in the same numbers, right? And their explanation, again, it goes back to something like seasoning, is, well, British soldiers, the most robust men, are the ones with the tensest fibres and the thickest fluids, the ones best adapted to the cold climates of Britain. And as a result, they're the ones who suffer the most when they get to a warmer climate where what's more appropriate is, by British terms, a more effeminate lax fibre. Whereas women and effeminate men are already kind of adjusted with their laxer fibres and so on, so they suffer less when they get to this new climate. So it's already built in a gendered understanding of why you get sick and who gets the most sick. Now, in terms of race, yeah, it's it's a fascinating way of thinking through these kinds of issues. There is a long-standing set of claims, which is that, for example, pregnancy is easier in the tropics. The idea also that uh, women experience menstruation earlier in warm climates. This is a long-standing thing going back to the, the classical world and onwards. Um, and gender inflects, well, again, the, the question is whether it's it's race or particular forms of habituation. That is to say, whether it's biological, as we would understand it, or situational and habituated. Um, But there are all kinds of elements running through the book that explore a particular kind of argument about uh, women's bodies and black women's bodies in particular. So there's a set of claims, for example... Again, very old and very pernicious, which suggests that um, black women are much more promiscuous than white women. Um, And that kind of argument then feeds into a whole set of arguments, too, about how promiscuity leads to sterility, uh, which is an explanation that's used for why you see populational decline among. Slaves, which is an extensive argument within the abolitionist movement. Um, so a lot of what can be argued is that, is that black women in some ways become, uh, well, it's a doubled kind of argument. They are simultaneously black, so they uh, uh, are engaged with claims about African natures and women. So they also participate in claims about womanhood and the naturalness of womanhood. I don't know if there's something specific in there that you'd like me to talk about, because I could, as I say, just just keep talking.
0: Yeah, well, I wonder about, um, so um, just black women in particular, and I guess you go back to the idea of them being more promiscuous and this is why they have problems with uh, childbirth Um, And, you know, just sort of, it it really struck me how through every, I mean, there were so many difficulties, of course, in in childbirth and child raising for women who were enslaved, which we can imagine was due to their condition of enslavement, but seemed to be blamed on either their race or their gender or both. I mean, obviously their gender because they're women, right? They're having the babies, but yeah. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, one way to to track this, for example, one way that I do track this within the book is within debates about abolition. So one um, one of the medically based arguments that abolitionists use, which ends up being really powerful as an argument, is that they say, look, West Indian slavery is not only horrific, it's even more horrific than slavery in other parts of the world. Which is a pretty powerful argument, given that people are well aware of the horrors of, say, North American slavery. But the argument that they make is they say, look, um, I can prove how bad it is. The slave population in North America is increasing. Right. It's it's self-perpetuating. They say, look, the conditions in the West Indies are so bad that the enslaved population is dropping every year. You need to bring slaves in every year, otherwise the slave population will be wiped out over time. That's how horribly you're treating these people. The response for those defending slavery is to say, you're looking at the wrong part of this problem. You're only looking at death rates, but that's not where the problem is. The problem lies with birth rates when you, enslaved women aren't having enough children or those children aren't surviving long enough. And that's when a whole bunch of pro-slavery arguments end up focusing on enslaved women as the fault for all of this. And they make two separate arguments. One of them I've already alluded to, that the quote-unquote natural promiscuity of black women, which makes them more like animals in this argument, that natural promiscuity leads to sterility. And as a result, they have fewer births. That's argument one. And then argument two is even when they do have children, they don't take care of those children properly. Right? Unlike white women who would take care of their children, black enslaved women just don't care and don't uh, take care of their children once they're born. So that, the pro-slavery argument says, that's the reason that the population is not increasing. It has nothing to do with the treatment of these people by slave owners. And so you can see that just horrific argument then really singles out black enslaved women as the cause of their own misery and the cause of populational decline writ large. It's a particularly gross and pernicious argument, one that I really try and tease out in the book, because you really have to get into the details to understand precisely how it's functioning within the period.
0: Yeah. And the pro-slavery people really seem to be missing a step in the logic there, which is that the reason the black women are not able to, take care of their children as well, is perhaps that they are slaving, you know, away, toiling in... uh,
1: A hundred percent. And the argument that they make, you know, which is as gross as you would imagine, is, no, we treat them really well, uh, coming up to... Uh, The period when they give birth, we, you know, we totally take care of them. There's an entire kind of paternalistic argument, which is, no, we absolutely we take excellent care. Those abolitionists are making up their claims about the brutality of treatment or it's a couple of rotten apples and so on. But we can ignore those. No, we treat them really well. So there aren't social explanations for this. It then has to be natural so to speak it's in the nature of these women that this is going to happen so that tends to be the fault line then and they just systematically reject what to seem to us to be the most natural kinds of explanations that it's it's slavery stupid uh that's the reason that this is happening which is of course the argument that abolitionists are making that this isn't going to improve until you get rid of slavery and then it will that's those are the words I was seeking. It's slavery, stupid. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, and that's what they reject wholeheartedly, of course, because they're defending the slave trade.
0: Yeah. Um, so that's great because I, I wanted to talk about abolition and and the relationship of medicine, but let's first just talk about. I hope I pronounce this right. Polygenism. Am I saying that right? Polygenism. Yeah. Okay, polygenism. Um, Would you just tell us what is polygenism and and what was its significance to slavery and abolition and and the whole idea of race?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, basically, this goes back to, uh, to theology. So you read the book of Genesis, it makes it very clear that all human beings are descendants of Adam and Eve. Right, there is one creation. This is named monogenism in the nineteenth century. Uh, one creation, right, and as a result, every human on Earth is fundamentally related to every other human on Earth. We're all multi cousins because ultimately our ancestors are Adam and Eve. Right, what you start to see. So there's an old heresy which says, look, maybe there were multiple creations right? So everyone isn't related to Adam and Eve. That tends to be an argument about theology, right? Not necessarily about slavery or anything else. In the 18th century, around the 1750s, 1760s, you really begin to see the rise of British abolitionism. And that abolitionist argument is fundamentally a religious one. It says, look, you're supposed to be your brother's keeper. And that is in no way Uh, something that can be reconciled with owning slaves, right? So for Christian reasons, this is not okay. And there's a way in which that the response to that, which used to be the justifications for slavery used to be kind of legal. It's legal to own slaves. It has been in the West since the classical period. They have to respond to that kind of Christian argument. And one of the responses is in essence to simplify but what if we aren't all related? What if this is not my brother and hence I don't have to be my brother's keeper? And you get an argument which says, well, what if there were multiple creations? Africans were created in Africa, Europeans in Europe, and so on. Then we're not all related. And indeed, the difference between us might not be that of cousinage. It might be as big as the difference between species. And that then tends to be an argument which really supports uh, slavery. Then you don't have to take care of these people in the way that you would people to whom you're related. So polygenism, increasingly, this is much more clearly true in the 19th century, becomes a defence of slavery. Um, it doesn't always have to function in that way, but it increasingly does. Now, there are other arguments for why Polygenism makes sense, but we can maybe bracket the kind of natural historical ones unless you're particularly interested in them. Um, because the question here is about how it plays into uh, debates about abolition, and one of them is yeah, polygenism tends to lend support to a pro slavery cause.
0: And then how does medicine figure in the abolitionist debate?
1: Yeah. So actually, just let me finish that last thought because it goes back to yeah, your yeah. earlier question about uh, sex and gender. So just one small thing: we noted that argument, right, which says that uh, childbirth is easier in warm climates. So just real quick, back to theology: it's to be remembered that Eve eats of the apple of the tree of eats the fruit of the tree of knowledge. There are multiple punishments. Uh, that go with the fall. We know illness for the first time and so on. But one of the punishments upon Eve is pain during childbirth, right? The idea is that before she eats of this fruit, uh, she can have children and it doesn't hurt. So one of the arguments then is that, oh, if African women don't feel pain or don't feel as much pain during childbirth, maybe that's an indication that they're not in fact descended from Eve, right? And it tends to feed into a polygenist argument again. Maybe they're descended from another matriarch who has not been punished in this way, and this then functions as a kind of proof of that. Um, But to your question about abolition, so doctors end up arrayed on either side of the abolition debate. So some Dr. Ramsey, for example, famously James Ramsey, uh, runs through a whole series of medical arguments trying to show how horrific slavery is. Uh, The populationist argument is one of them. Uh, He points to the horrible treatment of pregnant women in particular. He had been trained. In a birthing hospital in Britain. So he has kind of pays particular attention uh, to mothers. Um, he, uh, he talks about the treatment of illnesses. He talks about the fact that slave owners don't really call out doctors to take care of their slaves until basically it's too late. So there's all kinds of medical arguments that say look, the only solution here is to get rid of slavery. This is an absolutely abysmal. Uh, way of treating people, and it leads to death and suffering. And on the flip side, you have a bunch of doctors who are essentially working for slave owners who then point by point try to use medical arguments to refute that. So they say, well, in fact, I've never been called out to treat a slave who has been badly treated by a slave owner, so no, all the evidence that you're citing is false or made up or again you know, the exception that proves the rule. Um, and then a lot of physicians who run exactly the same kinds of arguments that that I've laid out, that in fact, the reason infants die when they're born to enslaved mothers is because enslaved mothers aren't taking care of them properly. Um, and that medical men have a special expertise in this, and so they can really speak to this. So again, it's not because of the treatment of slave owners, which those doctors claim is in fact paternalistic and very good, it's because of other reasons that they can testify to it as physicians. So it's interesting then that that physicians line up on either side of the debate and then fight in medical terms about whether slavery or the slave trade in particular is to be justified or not.
0: Hmm. And did that divide it all along the lines of being more London-based, metropole-based versus being based in the West Indies or because that's mainly where we're talking about slavery, right? Or, or was yeah, it doctors I mean, well, who were – yeah.
1: Yeah, no, it's certainly you, – you, the abolitionist movement, as you would imagine, tends to be much stronger in London than it is in Jamaica, right? Um, so a lot of what's going on here is a fight for uh, the public, and the public's imagination and the public's sensibility, right? Uh, And a lot of that is aimed in London, where Parliament can make decisions about the colonies. So they're really appealing to people's emotions, and I think that that's why pro-slavery actors are really worried about this, right? Uh, They can see that sympathies are being generated by these records of how horribly, say, mothers in particular are being treated. And it's well worth noting that there's a really strong women's movement in support of abolition in Britain. It ends up being an incredibly powerful place for women in particular to get involved in this one kind of political area. It's women, for example, who lead a boycott against the use of sugar right? Because sugar is West Indian. So if you're not buying sugar, then you're trying to cripple the West Indian trade. Uh, So you're really fighting for the hearts and minds, so to speak, particularly in the metropole. Uh, Because a lot of the people, you know, who were in the West Indies are, of course, sympathetic to precisely the thing through which they're making their money. Mm.
0: So how influential was the medical argument in Uh, the end of slavery in Britain, do you think?
1: I mean, I think reasonable. Um, I think it definitely uh, helps to sway hearts and minds. I think that focus on women and mothers really does do an enormous amount. And it's worth noting, I mean, at, at a very practical kind of level, it does lead to changes in the law for the treatment of slaves. So this is one of those mixed bags, right? It doesn't get rid of slavery. Uh, that will take until 1806, 1807 uh, for the slave trade and then slavery in the 1830s. But what it does lead to is an argument about amelioration of slavery, where a series of laws are passed, which indicate that you do indeed have to take medical care of the slaves that you own, and so on. So it has enough of an effect that it changes legal policy, but it's worth noting that it's not enough. Nothing is enough in the 1780s and 1790s uh, to abolish slavery at that time or abolish the slave trade at that time. And then the laws don't really have any teeth, right? So they they do feel a bit symbolic, uh, the laws that get passed. They're meant to make things better. It's not clear what the executive action is when they don't work.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I, I'd like to jump to today and uh, the term tropical medicine. So in the introduction, you say that tropical medicine was born at the end of the 19th century. and you don't return to the term really until the conclusion, actually you use the term tropical tropical diseases. Uh, and in the conclusion, you discuss the ways in which Imperial medicine helped to bring about tropical diseases. And you have that in quotes, tropical diseases uh, and distinct races of humankind. And just I've heard people recently call for an end to the use of tropical medicine, which is used in the names of you know various research institutes uh because they see it as a colonialist construct but if i you know i looked up the term online and it has this seemingly straightforward definition which is a branch of medicine dealing with tropical diseases although you know according to your research tropical disease is not such a straightforward term so i wonder what your research contributes to our understanding of the current use of the term tropical medicine and where you stand on that
1: yeah it's a really good question so um that term tropical diseases, one of the reasons it's in quotes is that the first time I can find it used in the title of a book is 1787. It's quite late, right? And part of the the point of the book is that the construction of the tropics as a distinct disease zone is, is actually very late. It doesn't come about until the end of the 18th century at the earliest. Otherwise, people talk about the diseases of warm climates. But a lot of the time, what they're doing is drawing similarities, again, this is why this is crucial, between, say, the kinds of diseases that you get in London in the summer and the diseases that you get in, say, Jamaica year round, right? So it's not an absolute distinction. It's just, it's more that, oh, in Jamaica, they get summer diseases all through the year, right? Now, what you get, of course, by the end of the 19th century, which is when you start getting institutes for tropical medicine and so on, is the idea that there is something really distinct about the diseases that you find between those latitudinal bands marking out the tropics. So that's one, that what you f- the diseases that you find in the tropics are distinct from the diseases that you find in, say, the temperate zones. And then, so that's a difference, but then also the diseases within the tropics are all somehow similar to one another. Right, such that you can speak about, you know, diseases that are common to say, I don't know, northern Australia, India, parts of Africa, and so on. You can talk about those as if all of them are related to one another. So you create this weird similitude and you create a difference. So that's all strange and needs to be historicized, and that's part of what I do. Now, to the political point. Yeah, I think that there is a problem because part of what's going on is that there is a long history of the construction of tropicality, right? So the idea that the tropics are uh, famous for their fecundity, for their excess, right? The particular kinds of people are to be found there uh, who are often defined in terms of their bodies more than their minds. Uh, it's a culture of excess. And I just think that those associations Uh, that we bring about what tropicality means really then shape any field that wants to be called tropical medicine. So it's not clear to me, either medically, right, that it's meaningful to group together all of the diseases you find in this massive latitudinal band on either side of the equator. I don't think that that's a, a meaningful concept. And I think it brings with it an enormous amount of baggage from classical history forward. And I think it would be more useful to break up the kinds of things that we're talking about uh, because I actually think that they're more local a lot of the time. I don't think that you can find exactly the same diseases across all of the places that you find in the tropics. And if that's true, it's not clear why you would call them all part of tropical medicine. Hmm. So do
0: you think it is to some extent like the term oriental, oriental medicine? I mean, I'm, I'm an acupuncturist and we have recently been, it appears oriental medicine appears in the names of all these acupuncture colleges and then nobody wants to call themselves by their name anymore uh, because, because uh, you know, it doesn't, it's, it's just doesn't seem acceptable anymore.
1: No, 100%. I think that's a nice analogy. Um, and, you know, it's <laughs> it's always been strange to me. I grew up in Australia, now I'm living in the States. Um, the Orient is meant to, of course, indicate the East, but it's the East relative to another place, right? I mean, it's well worth, It's it's weird to sit in the United States and hear people talk about the Far East, the Near East and the Middle East. As if that's a meaningful way of orienting from where you are, say, in the United States, as opposed to from where you are in London. Um, the Far East isn't nearly as far right from the U.S. So a lot of this is about a colonial heritage and a particular way of organising uh, the world and relationships in the world that I just don't think are tremendously useful, uh, and given those long histories and that construction of the tropics as a lesser and intrinsically dangerous place, I think that there's a lot of baggage that goes with those terms that, that just doesn't seem, so to speak, medically necessary in order to do the kinds of research that we want to do.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Um... And I have to admit that that not that many years ago when i, I first heard about these Institutes of tropical medicine in London and uh, I thought I thought they were studying rainforests or something <laughs> yeah. it's you know it sounded very attractive to me, and then I hadn't realized at all what the context was so um, yeah, it's interesting uh, well, Suman, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but I would like to ask you. Uh, A final question, which is, what are you working on now, or what is your next project?
1: uh, Yeah, no, it's it's what I'm working on now. It it is not the dramatic change that it was from book one to book two. It is, in many ways, a continuation of um, of the work in book one. So book so uh, book two. So difference in disease ends with a question about what I call race medicine, and in essence, what I'm after is when you start getting arguments that say that the reasons, say, those of African descent are less susceptible, say, to yellow fever than those of European descent, the old explanation of that is, okay, well, they get habituated to warm climates and yellow fever is a warm climate disease. So, of course, the people who are more habituated to it are less likely to be badly afflicted, right? It's a habituationist argument. It's about seasoning. In the 19th century, that argument becomes a racial one, that there's something innate in, say, black bodies that is different to what you see in white bodies, and that race then is the cause of these differences in susceptibility or or its opposite, immunity, right? So I note that you know, right at the end of the 18th century, you can begin to see a few of these arguments, a handful, but it's not at all the orthodoxy. And so the question for the new book, which is now on the 19th century, is, all right, so how and why do we end up with arguments that say, like Darwin does, says, for example, in The Descent of Men, okay, well, We all know that Africans are immune largely to yellow fever, and that is in some way connected to their racial characteristics. How do people make that case? And so there's a bunch of stuff that I take up here, but one of them is about the role that statistics Plays. So statistics is actually a pretty new concept. The word is coined in 1749 in German. We start really getting a lot of medical statistics around 1815. And part of what I'm trying to show right now is that it's through military medical statistics that you start getting race becoming real and numerical in a way that you really don't before. And you start getting arguments like, well, people of African descent have a 50% higher likelihood on average of getting this disease than do those of European descent, right? Thus making race medically and statistically real. And one of the reasons I'm so interested in that is that, of course, that's a lot of the way that race is used today in medicine, right? So if you're a woman and you think that you might Uh, suffer from breast cancer, you'll go into a physician and your physician may well ask about, they'll probably call it your ethnicity, but they're really going to phrase this in terms of race. And they're going to ask whether you have an Ashkenazi Jewish heritage, for example. And they'll say that the reason why is because women of Ashkenazi heritage have an X percent higher chance of getting breast cancer. So whereas it used to be that you couldn't really talk about race in the natural sciences anymore, more and more and more, you hear people justifying the use of race, particularly in this kind of genetic argument, uh, and part of the way they make that claim is a causal argument, something intrinsic to the body born in the genetics, and a statistical argument. It's not every woman of Ashkenazi heritage gets this, but you have an X percent higher chance. Of getting it. And a lot of what I'm focused on right now is the history of that concatenation of ideas, which leads in from the 18th century but sees pretty substantial breaks as well.
0: Wow. So that is really interesting the connection with statistics. And is this uh, going to be another book? It
1: is, uh, you know, hopefully. (laughs) I've written multiple (laughs) chapters of it um there's always you know it's it's planned to be a book but until it's in covers i always feel like i'm jinxing myself a little bit uh uh yeah but that's the plan it's about half finished i I had some leave next year i'm hoping to write more of it
0: good well i know that the uh university press is not the fastest (laughs) way to get published but um but i look forward to you coming back and telling us about that book when it comes out
1: I would love to do that. Thank you. Yeah,
0: great. Um, Well, Suman, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I I have really learned a lot from the book and even more from talking to you today. Uh, And the book, once again, everyone, is Difference and Disease, Medicine, Race, and the 18th Century British Empire from Cambridge University Press.
1: Thank you so much, Rachel. This was fantastic.